But uh, we are walking through the Bible. Today is Ezra. Next week will be Nehemiah. If you've got, a, if you've got a, a table of contents and a calendar, you can pretty much figure out where we're going to be. We will split up some of these. For example, we're not going to make you read all of Psalms in one week. That, that will make you cross-eyed. But we will um, take a look at most of these one book a week. Ezra is a very interesting book, but it's a very odd book. Many of you, for example, have um, started the year with New Year's resolutions. Most of those have been broken, but the year's been here for a while, so we can understand this. You know, it's, just, it's an attempt to organize your life a little bit around new priorities, and that's fine. The fact that they often fail is not a reason not to make them. It's a nice thing to sit back and say, this is what I would like to do or be or accomplish in this year. Often, as in battle, um, it's, if you're in the military, you know this, no battle plan, no matter how well developed, survives first contact with the enemy. And no matter what your plan is for the year, once you hit reality, that was, you know, many of you had plans for Christmas. And then a bug came and changed your reality. What is the reality that Ezra is living through? And what is his plan? And how's it going to work? We have a very hard time with Ezra and Nehemiah because they lived in a world that could not be more different than the world we live in. And we tend to oversimplify and strip down the story to something like this. Israel was bad. Judah was bad. God sent Israel off into captivity. God sent Judah off into captivity. Uh, Judah was kept in Persia until Cyrus the king said that they could go back. There's so much more to the story than this. We think of them as a block of people moving here, staying in place and moving back. But Humans are more resilient and, and complicated than this. The people of Israel are gone, by the way. They never came back. They're absorbed. They're lost to history. The ten tribes never resurfaced. But the two tribes below Judah, we know about them, or do we? Were they taken into captivity? Some were. Figures vary, but nobody estimates that more than 20% of Judah was taken. Most Judah stayed right where they were, with no government and with no protection and in chaos. It was the leaders, it was the priests, the royalty, the upper classes, those type of people, they were taken to Persia. Now they're separated. They're separated from their systems. They're separated from their people. We'll bring this up again when we look at the book of Ezekiel. That's going to be a fun week. Uh, if you've never read Ezekiel, take your meds. Uh, because it can be a confusing book. It really can be. And, 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 and if Ezekiel had taken his meds, it had been easier to understand, I think, sometimes. It's a very complex book. But Ezekiel, for example, was a fellow that had, had trained for the priesthood, as Jeremiah had, but now couldn't do it because they were removed from their systems. What do you call a priest without a temple? What do you call a king without a throne? They had no access to courts, no access to temple. They had no access to laws. They had no rights. They were an abandoned people. The first generation was broken. Many of them died. Many of them died of despair. And their faith died as they were absorbed into a new culture. You see, 
no matter how much you try to put people in a ghetto, some people are going to spin out of it, and some people are going to spin into it, and there's going to be mixture. A lot of the faith of Israel was being lost. And those who remained worked hard on organizing some way to keep your national identity strong. This is, hits very close to home for us. In the, um, in the years between 1200 and 1650, in Scotland, it was very difficult to be a Scot because from time to time, the English would come over and make laws saying you couldn't speak in Gaelic anymore. Gaelic's an entirely different language, not related to English. Uh, it's not English with an accent. Um, you couldn't speak in that anymore. You couldn't wear any traditional Scottish clothing anymore. You couldn't play any traditional Scottish music. And even up into the 19, around 1970, some of this was still going on. But back in Walter Scott's time, uh, Sir Walter Scott, they threw a party for King George, an English fellow who was, in, in all Christian love, a bit of a twit. Uh, and and he, he, he came up to see Scotland, and they, they risk something. And they all came out playing bagpipes and wearing uh, the kilt and the like. And, and King George liked it so much, he, he made up one of his own. And he, you know, what's the point? The point is, all that tartan stuff about, well, this is my family's tartan, is only true from about 1600. It was made up. It was a way of saying, we need to form an identity. We need, to, we need to save our identity. Even bagpipes originated around India and Pakistan. They're not Scottish, but they are now. Why? We needed an identity. A lot of your um, foundational myths about Betsy Ross and all this other are really myths, but there's nothing wrong with them. It gives you an identity. What Ezra and his group was trying to do was, how do we form an identity when we are surrounded by another culture. And the Persian culture was a very powerful culture. And so they began to write their story. They gathered all of their books. In fact, it is amazing when you read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles, even 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, how many times it refers to books we don't have. The uh, writings of the prophet Edo, the chronicles of the kings of Judah, all of these that we don't have. They gathered them all together and said, we've we got to get our story down. We've got to get it down. We've got to make sure our kids know our story. So they developed the synagogue, the congregation. They didn't have a temple anymore, so they had to find another way to worship. They couldn't do the sacrifices anymore. So they gathered, and they told their stories, and they read, and they prayed, and they shared uh, their, their history with each other. And one of the leaders in that second generation was a guy named Ezra. He was a priest, but he was also a chronicle, uh, chronicler, a writer, an editor. He's widely understood to be responsible for a lot of what we call the historical books of the Old Testament. He gathered them, put them together, made sure that we had them. All of this was in captivity in the 580s B.C., he was by no means the only one that did this, but he was the major one. And he left it to the Jews and to us as is until it was changed a little bit during the years of the Septuagint writing, which I'm not going to get off into the weeds on that right now. But basically what we have is this is their edit that they did to give us their story. His passion, his purpose in life 
was to save the identity of the Jews as a people with their own story, their own God, and their own purpose on this earth. Even though they were surrounded by a very pervasive culture with a different story. Some of you have been to Cambodia or to uh, parts of India uh, and, or uh, Thailand, and you have walked past hundreds of gods every couple of blocks. They are staring at you from everywhere, and the music is everywhere, and the story is everywhere, and you know how hard it is to keep your story when you're surrounded by a different story. Ezra's passion. We've got to teach the Jews their story. And then Cyrus comes along, and he says, we're going to let the Jews return. But he didn't do it all at once. He said, we're going to let this group go. And then we'll let another group go later, if that works and the like. So this group goes, and it's exciting. We get to go back home and establish our homeland again. But the problem is, land doesn't stay empty. Other people were there now. Samaria had fallen in 722, and all the Samarian refugees had come in, 26,000 by the time of Ezra. They were now living there. They had bought, they had um, cultivated the fields. They had built the houses. Now, not just them, there were other groups as well. The place was packed. So you arrive home, and what do you do? How do you deal with this? Well, Cyrus had given them some stuff to take. Back in those days when you conquered a territory, to prove that you conquered it, you took their gods back home with you. You take their idols. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar had taken over Israel, or Judah, rather, he took the temple, but there was no idol. The Jews don't have an idol of their god. So he took the stuff out of the temple, the furniture. So he gave that back to Ezra, and he says, you can take that back now. To where? But where do you put it? You don't even have homes to live in now. Other people are living there. What needs to be job one? What should be his New Year's resolutions? What should be, this is what we've got to do. You've got a lot of people in your land. You have to reestablish that this is your land and that you are a people. You're really a people. Believe it or not, there are many books that were written in the 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800s, and the 1900s that claimed the Celts were not even a people. No, no, that's all made up. We're all really British. Really? No such thing as Celts. The re the, they tried to wipe out, you're not a people anymore. That tried to happen here too. So they got to say, no, we're, we are a people. We're distinct from you. We have our own culture, our own language, our own God. How are you going to do it? Especially since a lot of the people you brought back with you are now speaking Persian and are now more Persian than they are Jewish. Many things changed. With a list of people that are sent back in the first wave, you might start reading Ezra and going, why do we need the list? That's a very good question. And there's a very good answer. It's because the Persians sent them back. The Persians required everything to be written down in detail, and nothing could be done unless it was written in detail with permission from the king. Nothing. Because you owned nothing. You did not own your clothes, your home, your very life. He owned it all. 
You couldn't do anything without his permission. You had to have the letters. Then you read Ezra this week, you noticed how many exchanges of letters were important. You had to have papers. You're Americans. What a blessing that is. In most places in this world today, if you decided to change jobs or to move house, you could not without permission of the government. You might say, well, that's like third world countries or communists are like in Scotland when I was growing up and when Cammie and I were still living there in the 80s, 86% of all housing was owned by the government. You had to get on a list and they would tell you where you're going to live. It may not even be in the city you wanted to live in. But if you turn them down, you're at the bottom of the list again. Maybe another five years before your name came up. That's, that's the way the world is. So these Jews have to have papers that say, no, we're allowed to be here. We were given this place. People by this name were allowed to do this. Ezra is, is up against it. He knows that. All of the people would be asking, do you have permission to be here? Do you have a task that's approved of by the Persian government? And are you the right leaders of the right people? You have to have papers. Show them the papers. Show them the papers. Remember, some of you might, maybe this helps a bit. Robin Hood. You, weren't, you, you get hungry, you're not allowed to kill an animal and eat it. That belongs to the king. You do that, you're an outlaw. Because the king owns everything. That's the way this was. Look at Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. What they did first, let's, let's be all in. The first group that came just said, let's be all in. The first question with any good work is, are you in? And the next question is, are you all in? We practice the ancient Christian rite here of full immersion for baptism. It's very important to us. And if you've not been baptized, we would like to talk to you about why we think that is desperately important. When we baptize, we don't just sprinkle a little bit on you. Or we don't you know, hit you with a mister. Uh, we, want you to, we want you to know you've got to be all in. You've got to say, I, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Put me in the water. That's what they needed there. They needed the people to say, we're all in. Good, good friend of mine, John Laster, is one of the greatest church experts I've ever known. Uh, he knows more about church growth and church systems and church governance than anybody I've ever met. And one of the things he would often say to me when we worked together in Detroit was, he said, the good news is we have enough money to end poverty in Detroit, to repair our buildings, and to, to set up a school for the people here. And I looked at him because I knew our budget. I said, seriously? He said, yes. The bad news is it's in our pockets. Wow. I've never forgotten that. Ezra was all in, and the people that came with him just said, whatever you want. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. And he meant it. Note that the rebuilding of the house of God was the first priority of Ezra. 
and anybody who listened to him, that was the first priority. Let's, let's make a center of our identity. And what is our identity? Our faith. I am, I am a male. I am white. I am Scottish. I am old. I'm a grandfather. I'm a PhD. But my identity is I'm a Christian. That's my identity. And that identity trumps all other identities. So it doesn't matter, red or yellow, black or white. It doesn't matter, uneducated, educated. It doesn't matter, rich or poor. It doesn't matter, male or female. Our identity in Christ trumps it. Ezra knew our identity in God has to trump everything. So start with the house of God, the center of worship. Start with the temple. Jesus would agree with this. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Steve Burgess is setting up a, a, a series on Saturday for those of you in secular work who want to know, all right, how do I take my Christianity with me? How do I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness when I'm working here or I'm working there? It's a very important question, and we've got to get it right because our identity in Christ has to be first, foremost. And by the way, when you start doing this, some people aren't going to be happy with you. And in Ezra, there are some people around who were not happy with this, they, in their mind, a large body of illegal aliens from Persia have now just stepped in. They didn't care that you said you were Jews. You sounded like Persians. You had a Persian accent. You used Persian words. You brought Persian instruments with you. They, they couldn't refuse to let them settle because the people had papers. So their tactic then was to absorb them. Let's just, if we can't drive them off, let's make them like us. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel... They came to them, Zerubbabel, and the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They, it sounds cold when the Jews go, you know, people say, well, we'll help you build the temple. And they go, no, this is us. But it's not cold. It's not cold at all. In fact, literally, the words mean, this is up to us, not to you. And there are several reasons why they said this. They had papers saying who was allowed to build. And seriously, if you let anybody else do it, it invalidated your papers, you might be back in prison and your whole permission shut down. That was Persia. Also, they didn't want the world to evangelize them and to mix their identity up. I want you to be very... Listen. I don't like this, but this is truth. The world is better at evangelizing us than we are at evangelizing it. 
and we had better be aware of it. We had better be aware of culture's influence on us and how that can affect our identity and how it can dilute our identity in Christ. These people went so far as to hire lawyers and lobbyists to get them back in trouble back in Persia. They just wanted to be left alone. Let us just do what we get permission to do. Wasn't allowed. In many ways, when I read this, I think of the Russian Orthodox Church during the time of the Soviet Union and even under Putin today. Like most places, they had to go along with the government to survive. There are those that really go after the Orthodox Church and say, you compromised with... And I'm thinking, do you know how many churches were shut down? Do you know how many people were killed? They had to work within the system that they had. They had no other choice. Most places in this world, for example, let's say you're in Egypt and you're, you're Christians and your, your building is old and the roof falls in. You can't even get in to sit because the rubble there. You can't fix it. You have to get permission. And you have to get permission to fix it, not like building permits here. You have to get permission from a religious board that isn't your faith. There are churches, there have been no new churches built in Egypt, although they have freedom of religion, we're told. No new churches, Christian churches, built in Egypt in over 40 years. And they won't let you repair them either. If something's broken, it's broken. You can't build, you can't fix, and you can't proselytize. In many churches in China, they do not sing out loud. They will turn to the words of a song and they will read them silently. Because if somebody hears you through the walls, you will be put in prison for proselytizing, evangelizing. This is not just true in China, but many places. You and I are so blessed. You and I, the Bible warns us, to whom much is given, much is required. We are so blessed. Ezra was not. And they shut down the work on the temple for a year. Oh, by the way, um, in most places in the Middle East to this day, they do not recognize Christian marriages because you don't have the right to marry without permission of the government, which is Islamic. You don't have the right to bury. None of your rights, R-I-T-E-S, have any effect in law. We need to deal with this reality our brothers and sisters are living through. They shut down in Ezra the work on temple for a year. They claimed the Jews were rebuilding the walls to make the city available to be a rebellious hot spot against Persia. They lied. It took the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who we will meet later as we walk through Scripture, to bring them back to rebuilding the temple. The lawyers and lobbyists did not quit. The day that you have nobody opposing your faith is the day that your faith is not all that noticeable. We are salt and light. Have you ever thought of that? Salt and light. What, what, was, what did he mean by that? In science, we call salt and light positive forces. What that means is you have to factor them in if they're there and factor that they're not there if they're not. In other words, let me put it a different way. You either want the lights on or you don't. 
You either want salt in your food or you don't. You're not ambivalent. Would you like salt on your beans? Yes, please. Would you like salt in your coffee? No. No, you don't have a, don't care. We have to live in such a way that they either are glad we're here or they're angry we're here, but they're never ambivalent. We are salt and we are light. In Ezra, we're not going to read it, but in Ezra 6, 1 through 5, it took the next king, Darius, to write back saying, no, they do have the right to rebuild and leave them alone. But I want you to notice something about this, and this will be a bit controversial as we begin to wrap things up. Don't get too excited. It's not that close to it. They worked within the system. Do you ever see Ezra writing for an overthrow of the government? Nope. Do you ever see him saying, we're being persecuted here. We need to march and, and attack. Our... No. They didn't take up arms against the government. Like Peter and Paul, they didn't complain about the government. That's the way the government is. Our allegiance is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, Paul says. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. We can't solve our problems through government. And brothers and sisters, you're in another election cycle here. You always are. Never ends. And it is so tempting to believe that if we vote for the right person, the problems will be fixed. And they, in the words of a great American hymn, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We are pilgrims and strangers. Vote if you wish. Be passionate about politics if you wish. But be aware that politics is a very small part of life. Our life is in Christ. That's who we are. I will never tell you who to vote for or who to not vote for. I will never tell you which party God likes best. Instead, I will say, we need to look at God and say, whatever party is reigning here, we know who is king. When we come to God, you might say, but, but if, if this, we, we could do so much for God, if only this, if only this, and God is never, ever interested in if onlys. We still speak of the widow because she gave two mites. That's nothing. Like a nickel today. But we still talk about her. Jesus didn't say, oh, what we could do in Judah if we only had some rich donors. No, he pointed to her. She did what she could. The woman, Jesus liked women. That's where his compliments went. Read him. It's interesting. The woman who cries on his feet and puts ointment on his feet, he says she's done what she could. That's all he's looking for. He's looking for Moses saying, when Moses is saying, I don't think I can do this, God says, what's in your hand? He goes, a stick. He goes, that'll do. 80-year-old guy with a stick. I think we're well armed and prepared. Let's invade Egypt. God is interested in not what you would do if, but what you will do anyway. He arrives, Ezra arrives in chapter 7, thanking God, ready to reestablish the religion of God in the new house of God. And there we find out something else. that You may like this. It was the people of God, not the priest, who built the temple. It was the people of God who drove this. Sometimes, church, 
It's the people in the pews that have to drag their leaders behind them. Because often leaders lead out of fear. They're afraid of, of contributions or afraid of attendance or afraid of, of upsetting somebody. And the people in the pews are going, wait a minute. Let's move. Let's do it. Our dear sister Wilson is lying unconscious after her second heart attack. Breaks my heart. 96 years old. She told Albert before the second heart attack that has uh, put her life in, in mortal danger that she was so thrilled that she lived long enough to see the changes here. A 96-year-old woman is not afraid. And so many 40-year-old church leaders are. In Ezra, it was the people that built the temple. The Levites aren't even mentioned. They're not even there. Look in, in, in chapter 8, verse 15. They're not there. And from then on in the Old Testament, the Levites are almost never mentioned. If they didn't lead, God had no need for them. Ezra takes the first step to restore the people's reliance on God, not government. And in Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, there by the Hava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we'd told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Did you catch this? He says, we still wanted to rely on government, but we decided no we need to make our choice. And we fasted and we prayed and we walked with God. Brothers and sisters, that's the only way we're going to get there. Ezra has to deal with something here which is very problematic, very painful to read. He ends marriages. Because back in those days, very often when you married somebody, it was the woman's gods that ruled the house. And a lot of them had married foreign women. And I've had people say, well, is God against foreign marriages? No, take a look. Moses' marriage was foreign. There are many of them that are foreign. It is whenever you are mixing your gods, he has problems. He goes, no, don't do that. Was Ezra right to end the marriages? I have a real hard time saying yes about that. I think that he, he overstepped it. And in fact, when Nehemiah comes, Nehemiah doesn't do the same rule. He has a different rule that keeps families intact, except for one family that he did not allow to stay intact. There's no easy way to understand this except to say it was an exceptional time. If these people don't get their identity, do you know what that means? There is no baby born to you in Bethlehem of Judea. There is no Jesus because there is no Jews. There are no Jews. There's no Judah. They've got to keep their identity long enough for Jesus to be born. Jesus is not a xenophobe. He's not opposed to foreign people. We're all foreign people to him. He had to keep this one group solid until Jesus came. And then Jesus said, go into all the world. Now there is no more Jew or Greek. We're all one. Without 
Jesus, all of us would be lost. And the devil knew that, and he took every action he could, including having people fall in love with the wrong people. Hey, teens, you can fall in love with the wrong people. You really can. And you can say, but it's true love. Yes, it is. They say love is blind. They're right. It's also completely stupid. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing, but, you know, it's also stupid. So you have to remember this. We also have to engage our brains, not just our heart. Do you remember my first sermon in this building? Not empty hands, empty arms. That was my first sermon I preached after I was hired here and moved here. I came in November of 2013 to visit, and I preached about, from Genesis to Revelation, move, counter, move. Every time the devil moves, God counter moves, and then the devil counter moves again. Our job, Fourth Avenue Church, is to never let the devil have the last move. Don't get tired. Don't back down. Don't get upset. Don't get depressed. Never let him have the last move. Nehemiah and Ezra wouldn't let him have the last move. They were going to deal with it. But it's how they dealt with it. Brother Albert, they dealt with it through prayer and fasting and a determination to rebuild the walls of their faith. And that requires study, time, prayer, and community. There are a lot of problems with church, but there are a lot more problems without church. We have to have the community to have the Spirit of God. And the prayer in the community, that's the priority. That identity will separate us, sanctify us, and help us be prepared for service in a foreign land because we're all in a foreign land as long as we live on the planet. Could we bring the team back up? I need to shut this down before lunch is served. For you visitors, there's no lunch. It was an expression. That's all it was. There's a class. There are classes. Great classes. Then after that, you're free to go to lunch. How's that? That's good. As long as we walk on this earth, we are pilgrims and strangers. Would you stand with me, please? Never let the devil have the last move. Never let the culture determine your identity. Find your identity in the Lamb of God. And every step, every action, create sacred space as we move on this earth. We are pilgrims here and strangers, but we are headed home. May God bless us all.